the National Archives podcast series, The Sustainability of Cultural Heritage, a Scientific Approach, presented by Professor May Kasser. This event was recorded live on the 26th of January 2011 at the National Archives Q. Our first speaker this evening is Professor May Kassar, Director of the UCL Centre for Sustainable Heritage. An unusual quantity in academic terms, I, I, I understand, in, in as much as Professor Kassar began as a historian, moved into the conservation world, and subsequently became qualified in engineering. And she now chairs, as I say, this fascinating body, the Centre for Sustainable Heritage, while also directing a national research programme on science and heritage. And she is to speak to us this evening on the sustainability of cultural heritage, a scientific approach. Professor Kassar. First of all, can I give my sincere thanks to the Friends of the National Archives for inviting me here this evening and for allowing me to range my thoughts a little bit around the sustainability of cultural heritage. And a scientific approach that I'll be taking is looking at really broader policy issues and how we, as a community that deals with cultural heritage, of which our archives are a core and central part, how we make them sustainable in an uncertain climate. And it is not only the physical climate that is uncertain, but as Oliver has already also said, the economic climate is also very uncertain. So I'd like to start by saying that in recent years, science and heritage have come together in many unexpected ways. Science and its application to our understanding of historic materials and how they change over time has revolutionised our thinking about the sustainability of our cultural heritage. It has enabled us to question how we value our heritage and how we manage the risks associated with human and environmental interaction with heritage. A new term, heritage science, has also been coined, and it was defined for the first time in 2006 in the House of Lords Science and Technology Select Committee Inquiry Report on Science and Heritage, from which I'd like to quote, Our cultural heritage is a legacy left to us by our forebears, which we in turn have a duty to pass on to our descendants. That heritage is in large part embodied in the physical artefacts, buildings, works of art, books, landscapes, which exist in a constant state of change or decay. Conservation may be defined as a cautious approach to the management of this change. Such conservation presents a fascinating, rich and diverse range of scientific challenges, which we have brought together under the heading heritage science. Today, science and heritage in the UK is both stronger and potentially more vulnerable than it has ever been. Strong because of the huge investment of approximately £7 million made by the UK Research Councils in Science and Heritage in response to the House of Lords inquiry and the increasing visibility of science and heritage as a result and vulnerable because of the risks posed by the current economic uncertainty. Heritage organisations have grappled in the past with chronic lack of funding and having to make do, but the deficiencies in the system were clear and everyone understood them. We actually got used to managing on limited resources. Today we face an unfamiliar and complex mix of risks and opportunities, 
new partnerships, new facilities and new data on the one hand, and weak statistics, poor forecasting and inconsistent influence over policy on the other. Opportunities derive from our ability to work in interdisciplinary ways, to value new knowledge and to apply to solve problems and devise solutions. The risks emanate from our inability to focus on issues that are beyond our immediate control, to muster our evidence of impact, and to exert influence over decision-making consistently. Science and heritage research and practice in the UK are a comparatively small field, but globally we punch above our size. We have strong international networks across North America, Europe and Asia, and with English as the language of science, we are well-placed to lead the field. We are admired in the world for our achievements in science and heritage, so we must project our influence abroad in order to protect science and heritage at home. We need to do this to derive economic benefits and to advance the heritage values we uphold. We need to build on our networks and collaborations, principally in our traditional partners in North America and Europe. But increasingly, the political steer is towards the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. However, our openness abroad needs to be matched by our resilience at home. And this is the most pressing issue we face today. All of this requires a decisive transformation in the way we think about the future of science and heritage and how we protect our achievements. The road which science and heritage in the UK has recently travelled began in 2004 when in London the 6th European Commission Conference on Sustaining Europe's Cultural Heritage from Research to Policy was held. The conference ended with a declaration on sustaining cultural heritage research, which contributed to the process by which the House of Lords Science and Technology Select Committee came to its decision to hold an inquiry on science and heritage. Besides defining heritage science, this report also made a number of recommendations, including that a dedicated programme of funding for research in science and heritage should be set up, the development of a heritage science strategy by the sector was recommended, and DCMS, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, was recommended to appoint a chief scientific advisor. In 2007, the five-year Science and Heritage Programme was launched, supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council working together. DCMS appointed its first chief analyst and chief scientific advisor in September 2008. And in March 2010, the National Heritage Science Strategy was published. The Science and Heritage Programme, to which I have just referred, is supporting 39 projects out of the 282 projects submitted for funding. This totaled an investment of £6.8 million out of the £105 million requested from the research councils. These figures indicate the strong groundswell of interest in science and heritage research in the UK across the domain of both movable and immovable cultural heritage. Until just a few weeks ago, it would have seemed credible to suggest that these actions would provide a firm foundation for science and heritage in the future. But the coalition's first budget announcements might signal that a more cautious approach is necessary. 
Yet even in these uncertain times, the pace of scientific and technological innovation will continue to increase and technological knowledge will spread more widely and more rapidly than before. The number of people able to access information and to innovate will increase. Innovation will be the key, for example, to the UK's energy security through the development of new energy technologies. Science and Heritage has a part to play in informing the design and performance of new systems that are compatible with the historic built environment. Social and demographic trends are also shaping the future, as are environmental factors. The physical effects of climate change will become increasingly significant as a risk multiplier that can exacerbate existing tensions across the world, and not just here in London. The 2007 floods in the UK, which occasioned the largest ever civil emergency response since World War II, highlighted the impact that natural disasters can have even on a fully developed, networked society such as the UK. If we are determined that the influence of science and heritage should not shrink, we need to prioritise our efforts to tackle climate change. The networked world creates great opportunities, but also new vulnerabilities. Protecting virtual assets, such as our powerful and expanding digital collections, on which we will increasingly depend for our contribution to the knowledge economy, becomes as important as directly protecting physical objects. Our ability to remain adaptable for the future will be fundamental, as will our ability to identify risks and opportunities at the earliest possible stage. Recognising that climate change and security risks to tangible, intangible and digital cultural heritage will increase in the future, the UK, as a member state of the European Union, took the decision to participate in an EU joint programming initiative, known in short as JPI, on cultural heritage and global change, a new challenge for Europe. The aim of joint programming is to increase the value of relevant national and EU research and development funding by concerted and joint planning. Within the concept of joint programming, EU member states coordinate national research activities, bundle their resources, benefit from complementarities and develop common research agendas in order to face the big societal challenges that cannot be solved solely on a national level. The European Council, the EU institution made up of the member states' heads of state and government, welcomed the concept and the objectives of joint programming in December 2008. Among the first themes of this initiative is the one on cultural heritage. In May 2010, the European Council invited the partners in this initiative to develop and implement a strategic research agenda and the United Kingdom, as a key partner in this project, will be responsible for leading the development of the European Strategic Research Agenda on Cultural Heritage. We must respond in different ways at this time of unprecedented uncertainty. If we know where we want to be, we can influence the future to a limited extent. We need to develop a new way of thinking. Strategic futures thinking provides an alternative approach to policies that are often driven by an official view of the future. It enables a wider range of potential opportunities to be assessed and for risks to be identified and managed. By testing policies against different futures, we build resilience. 
By creating a picture of where we are now, we can try to avoid our less preferred future and develop the contingency plans we need to survive. By scanning the horizon for future risks to science and heritage, we can construct longer-term scenarios. We can use horizon scanning methods as the basis for a national risk assessment of science and heritage capability by identifying the full range of existing and potential risks that might materialize over a five to 20 year horizon and their relative likelihood and impact. In judging priority, it will be necessary to consider our vulnerability or our preparedness to handle risk with the resources available to us. The insight into potential future risks that these methods provide will contribute to decisions on our future capability. We need to look forward and not only at the rear view mirror. We need to value our thinking on the future because the more information we can add to what we think will happen, the better our future will be. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, May. And I should say that I'm sure that there'll be lots of questions, but the structure of the evening invites you to keep those questions back into the end of the evening when we'll be having a little panel discussion and questions can be asked all the speakers together. And indeed, maybe we can engender some discussion amongst them. Well, now we move to Nancy Bell, who's head of collections care here. And I learnt with interest recently, she told me herself, her first job in the UK was in the conservation department at the College of Arms, where I personally work, a department that could not be more different in terms of scale and ambition from the vast collection care department here at TNA and I'm sure she will be giving us a very interesting perspective specific to TNA on what we've just heard from Professor Kassar. Nancy, thank you very much. Well, good evening everyone. I think my talk, listening to May, certainly follows on neatly because, you know, we heard words like innovation and risk and the future. So if we hold those, I think that my presentation about some of the work that we're doing here mines down on those themes a bit further. I want to share with you what I think has been quite an exciting project over the last 22 months. And also, I hope you see how it fits into a larger perspective, a wider perspective of managing the collections here at the National Archives. I also like to use this as an opportunity to really showcase the potential of interdisciplinary thinking and how that can help us solve problems that we're all facing. So as Head of Collection Care for the National Archives, it's a big job, but in a sentence I would say that I'm responsible for it developing and implementing programs to support the long-term preservation of the archive collections. And while there's many, many factors that affect the long-term stability of a collection, temperature and relative humidity are certainly two key factors. And therefore, getting those two elements right is viewed as the most cost-effective and the key to any program of care. I would also say that to do this, since over the last 50 years, most museums, libraries and archives in the UK and internationally and certainly in the Western world have relied on energy-intensive systems to enable this to be achieved. But we're working and living in quite a different context now. And while our reliance on fossil fuels has been here for some time, as Oliver alluded to, the world in which we operate has changed somewhat and we need to rethink how we manage our collections in the view of changing global responsibility. 
We're all aware of climate change. It's always, in my view, something that happens elsewhere. But as Oliver mentioned, in the last week or so, the heavy storms certainly affected the Kew community and rises in tide in the river brought home once again that this is not something that just affects the outdoor environment. It certainly affects, and it certainly did here at the National Archives, affect indoor collections as well. And I think it's worth just noting at this point that for risk assessment, something that may talked about in, in general terms, there's some, I had to look at where we're placed along the Thames, and there's 47 heritage institutions from Teddington Lock to the Houses of Parliament that could directly be affected by the rise in river. So on the one hand, we find ourselves in this paradoxical situation that we're mandated by the government to meet sustainability targets for carbon reduction. We need to reduce energy load, and in particular in a 1970s building. That was designed essentially as an office space and for mixed use to keep people warm in winter and cool in summer, as well as serving as a repository to preserve the collection. So, a complex problem, and one which needed compelling evidence to address. And therefore, in view of that, we turned to our colleagues at the Centre for Sustainable Heritage at University College London, and who over the years have developed an expertise in exploiting the potential of computer modelling, and in particular, the use of Energy Plus software. This was a 22-month project, computer-based building simulation of energy environment, and I'm talking about temperature and relative humidity, to model the four floors of the Q1 repository. Importantly, the purpose of the model was to examine options in maintaining an appropriate preservation environment while maintaining an appropriate level of preservation, reducing energy load in line with sustainability targets, and importantly, capital investment strategies. That's how we're going to maintain this building in the future. So modeling and computer modeling, for those of you less familiar with this, let me just say in the very simplest terms, and are probably undermining to some extent my colleagues at UCL, but they built a virtual building of the repository. And this was done by providing extensive data on how the building was built, what it was made of, air ventilation, temperature, relative humidity, all the construction types, the density of the material it holds, etc., etc. Now, in the very short time I have to talk, I can't really go into great detail about how this was built, but certainly we can answer more questions about that. Nor can I go into huge detail about what we learned. But what I want to do is really concentrate on some of the highlights of successes and achievements or how we're going to be taking this project forward. The model was used to test the impact of 16 different environmental management strategies on energy load and their impact on the environmental performance of the three floors of the building. The results were hugely encouraging since we found that significant energy savings could be made without compromise of the collection. For example, the scenarios that were tested were changes in the internal conditions. That is, what if we changed the internal conditions of the building? What would happen if we changed the structure of the building? How would it would perform if we changed the structure? What would happen in the performance of the building if we changed the operations in air conditioning radically or even not radically? What would happen if we changed the content of the repository? 
And that's a really important and vital piece of, of work because as we manage the building in the future and we take in more and more records, we need to know what the optimum use of that space might be while at the same time providing good preservation standards. What would happen if we changed the occupancy of the building? So often we hear about or we think about repositories only being about the collection or certainly colleagues in the museum world are under the same kinds of pressures and what happens if they were to change the people function or if we change the people function in the building. That is, this building was designed to cater for people as well as the collection what would happen if we looked radically in how those two functions were performed. So before coming on to some of the results, I want to say from a personal perspective, one of the key outcomes for me as head of collection care is that this project was so able to blow apart some of the myths that were in existence before this project was started. There has been many, many times where I've been at committee meetings and I've heard all we need to do is insulate the roof of the building. If we only closed up the windows, we could reduce solar gain and we could save a lot of money there. If we just take a few of those examples, and I'm just picking a few out of the 16. Improved insulation in the roof space has been a subject of very much debate and one I would suggest, as we say, is a logical conclusion. However, the simulation model proved that there was no significant reduction in energy load should insulation be increased, a good example of the critical importance of evidence to prove an argument. What would happen if we changed the scenario to explore the impact of increasing the content on the building? How does that affect our energy load? Logically, we might think that increasing the content would have a greater impact and we learned that even if the content was increased by 200%, there was no significant increase in energy load on the building. Similarly, what would happen if we blocked out all the windows on the upper floors of the Q repositories? Again, reducing thermal exchange was considered to make no significant difference. Again, while partition the internal space, because we have four plant rooms in that building, to align with the different functions of the plant would give us, optimize the performance of the building. Again, we learn that the evidence from the model disproved this notion. So what did we learn? Well, I think that we learned some quite significant things. That if we were to shut the system down on the weekends, it would save up to 22%. If during the months of April, May, and December, again, there would be a 25% savings if we would shut down the system according to an agreed schedule. If we were to seasonally adjust set points, again, there would be a 43% savings. And all of this overall would give us an annual energy saving up to 180,000 pounds, which uh, with Oliver's presence here, I have to say I'll be reminding him when we want to undertake another research project how much money we've saved him in the long term. <laughs> I also want to say that this project was able to demonstrate that with expected energy warming temperatures between 2050 and 2080, that we are building in resilience to this system, that we can continue to save energy if we combine and optimize the number of scenarios and we really learn how they perform and our energy savings should be able to continue for years to come. Just a few words about some significant outcomes and next steps. This project wouldn't have been made possible without really close collaboration with our team in Estates. And we started 22 months ago 
with, I would say, a working relationship. But now we have what I would consider a very close collaborative relationship. And the next steps are that we're going to take the results of the building environment simulation project, along with other evidence gathering exercises that's been underway in collection care. For example, my team has performed a stellar task, I would say, in mapping where all the collections are in the four floors of the repository according to material type. So we now have a good visual representation of where photographs are and parchment and paper, etc., etc. And as we plan the estate for the next 10 years, because that project is now kicking off since this project is finished, we're going to take all the evidence from this as well as the mapping exercise and the estate's capital plan for the next coming years and really think quite radically about a blank sheet if we're going to plan how this Q site's used for the next 10 or 15 years, how can we optimize it in a way that continues to meet the targets that we need to meet and reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. So a lot of work ahead of us. In a way, this is just ending one part of the puzzle and starting again on another piece. I also want to mention that the National Archives is leading on the development of a new environmental standard. And we're working very hard on British standards that's publicly available specification 198, which will cover temperature, relative humidity, light, and pollution. And again, alluding back to what May was saying about risk and innovation, it's envisaged that this specification will take a very radical new, a different approach in looking to the future, and it will be very much by, guided by risk assessment and mitigating those risks but also putting that decision-making very much back to the collection managers and those who are responsible for the collections. But before leaving you completely, I'd like to come back to full circle that where we started and May's presentation about its wider scope and where this is situated. We can't underestimate the kind of work this project like this have to a wider cultural sector. And I think that I feel quite proud that this project has demonstrated, and I hope will continue to demonstrate to the cultural sector, the power of building modeling. And also developed, it very much developed the state-of-the-art technologies to explore environmental scenarios, and that we need to move beyond the conventional way in which we've managed the environment and take a much more innovative and evidence-based approach. And that ends on my final point, which is I want to underline once again the power of evidence to change practice and as a tool to communicate to those who set the policies and practices for our sector. So I end there. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>